0: Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your healthcare.
1: Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. Today's title is Chronic Fatigue Syndrome and COVID-19 Long Haulers. What can these two illnesses teach us about the other? I have done three prior podcasts on chronic fatigue syndrome with really interesting guests. I had Sarah Myhill from the United Kingdom. That was actually one of my most popular podcasts. I've also done it with Dr. Jacob Teitelbaum, who's well-known in the U.S. Both of them really very much clinicians. And Dr. Peter Rowe at John Hopkins, who mainly deals with teens and young adults that have chronic fatigue syndrome. So it was really fascinating, each one of those podcasts. However, today's guest who I recently found out about is probably the most prolific researcher in the field of chronic fatigue syndrome for the past 30 years. You know, She came to my attention when I was reading an article about COVID-19 patients who were being called long haulers for their chronic symptoms that resemble chronic fatigue syndrome. Dr. Klimas was recently awarded a $4 million grant by the CDC to study these patients, which has tremendous implications for the health of so many people, that were infected with COVID-19 and patients, I think, with chronic fatigue syndrome. She's the director of the Institute of Neuroimmune Medicine at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. She is also professor and department chair at the Department of Immunology at the College of Osteopathic Medicine, also at Nova Southeastern University, and she's a professor emeritus at the University of Miami School of Medicine. As some of my listeners may know, I've been treating chronic fatigue patients for over a decade, so this podcast is personal. I want to learn every pearl of wisdom I can from my esteemed guests, so it's my great pleasure to welcome Dr. Nancy Clemas to the podcast.
0: Well, thanks for having me. It's really a, uh, an honor to be included under your smart doctor category. That's cool. You are. You are.
1: <laughs> you know, I'm going to start off with what interests me, too, a little bit about your background. Now, I saw in your biography that you completed... Uh, A while back, like I did, your Allergy Immunology Fellowship at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. Um, I believe you finished in around 1984. And and I actually finished my fellowship at Columbia in New York, also for allergy immunology around 1991. And that was the the height of the AIDS epidemic. So I'm just curious also, how did you get involved with chronic fatigue patients? Because, again, at that time, AIDS was probably even a bigger thing in our field. And, of course, allergy. Yeah. So what drew you into chronic fatigue? And when did you start getting involved with that?
0: I mean, I was neck deep in the AIDS world. You are, right, Yeah, yes. absolutely. And I'm a clinical immunologist. So what it really got me into it was I was in my University of Miami clinic at the time, which was much more, well, actually it was an allergy clinic, but so it was mostly immunology. A patient came to see me that had had The classic MECFS kind of presentation, which is to say she came in with a box of medical records, having seen like 18 other clinicians. And she'd done this horrible round robin, as so many do, where she saw a bunch of people who said, not my field, not my field. I don't know what to do, blah, 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 blah. Go see a psychiatrist. It's all in your head over and over again. It was so demoralizing. And when she got to psychiatry and she was open to that... The psychiatrist said, there's nothing wrong with you that I can put my finger on. It's not in your head. So then where was she? All the below the neck people had said, it's not down here. And uh, above the neck people said, it's not up here. And she was stuck. She came to me, an immunologist, and said, would you look at my immune system? Everything else has been looked at. And as it happened, I was working with Mary Fletcher at University of Miami, one of the world's, one of the most amazing laboratories, And they, we did everything. We looked at absolutely everything. We were doing all this HIV work. So we just stuck it in with all the other research we were doing. And I came back to her about three weeks later and I said, I have bad news. I said, your cytotoxic T cells aren't working. Your natural killer cells are in poor number and they can't kill anything. You have inflammatory cytokines circulating. There's a lot going on here, but I don't know what to name it. I can't tell you what it is, but there's something there. And she burst into tears. And I thought, oh my God, Nancy, you're the worst doctor. You could have said this differently, you know? And when she finally stopped sobbing, she said, no, no, no. You finally told me that I'm real. I validated that there was something really there. Well, as it turned out, she'd been sitting in waiting rooms with other people that were doing this round, Rob. And so within a couple months, I had, I think, 25 patients. I did the whole thing all over again. I published this obscure article. I mean, talk about obscure. (laughs) But in like a case series of 24, 25 people I described in this article, it was in a great journal, but not one that primary care doctors read. It was a journal of clinical microbiology. Okay. And in the discussion, I had said, this appears to be some form of an immunodeficiency disorder. It doesn't appear to be congenital, so it's acquired. Something like that, I said. Right, Right, And the AP wire picked it up. HIV activists got angry. Because I, I didn't say it was AIDS. I mean, I knew the difference between AIDS and everything else. But right. remember, AIDS acquired immunodeficiency right, syndrome, right. right? And I was saying, oh, my God, there's another acquired immune system disorder. And people just twisted their wires. And I made the AP wires all over the planet. And within a year, I had hundreds of patients begging to see me
1: well did you just out of curiosity when you first saw those first few patients did you have a clinic that was looking at it or you just no i was
0: just in this immunology immunology
1: they were just coming okay yeah Mm -hmm.
0: yeah just came they showed up because they thought hey there must be something wrong with me
1: you've had three decades of research caring for patients with chronic fatigue syndrome do you have a better sense if this illness is a mitochondrial disorder or a latent infectious disease with some type of immune dysfunction, or sort some type of neuroimmune disorder. You know, all of these conditions, obviously, very difficult to have specific testing for. But I just I'm curious about your sense when you're seeing these patients, if you see sort of this overlying theme in many of the patients.
0: When you're talking with the mitochondria people, or you're talking to the viral people, or the immune people. It's like that old elephant in the blind scientist touching the different legs and the tusk and the, and not seeing the elephant. And, and this illness, you really have to step back and take the big view and try to understand the, the totality of it instead of trying to perceive it through a single lens. I made the mistake for a lot of years of being an immunologist and an infectious disease person looking at it through that lens. And it wasn't a total mistake. I certainly had one part of the elephant pretty well defined by the end of all that work and the mitochondria work was equally important, but actually for us to put it all together, we've been using kind of Watson kind of computational modeling where we don't leave anything out and we put everything
1: in. I'm glad you're pointing that out because it sounds exciting. I I want to hopefully get to some points about that later. Yeah. Okay.
0: So our group actually uses this, this computational modeling approach, this supercomputer, leave no data out. A way to accentuate the illness, we use an exercise challenge. And we draw bloods at the baseline on the bike. They're on the bike just a few minutes, but they're on the bike. And then we measure them every 15 minutes for a while. We draw nine time points. And then we measure all the genes that are activated in what time course, what's being expressed, what cytokines, what hormones, and so on. And then we back off and we put that all into this supercomputing model of the dynamic modeling of the illness. What's the dynamics of a relapse? and use the computer not only to tell us what came first, but also where the intervention points are. And we can do clinical trials in a computer, hundreds of thousands of clinical trials, attempting to rebalance or reboot or to effectively treat that that model of of what's wrong. So we're very excited about this. Funding has been very strong and we've been able to go from in silico modeling to animal testing of the interventions through to human phase one clinical trial, which is exciting. We've been able to go Mm. from bench through this in silico thing to animal to human and show that we can't treat this illness as one system gone or muck. It actually has to be treated in more than one approach and more than one system at a time. Which actually should sing to the integrative medicine doctor's soul.
1: Yeah, and I think it's a great point. Right. Because, you know, so many doctors, we're also, you know, there's so many specialties, they all want to claim an illness for their own. And that's one of the things that the integrative and functional medicine doctors offer. But again, somebody like yourself who's got such a respected, immunology background, bringing this all together. But I I think it's a great point that you're making because again, so many times doctors do not like it. They like something clean, well-defined and this illness is anything but that. in a
0: specialty domain, they want to send it to somebody else.
1: Yeah. That was the title of one of my podcasts, The Disease That No Doctor Wants to See. <laughs> it's
0: really true. But this one, you really have to treat. You have to treat the mitochondria. Absolutely.
1: You do. Okay. Well, that was important because you know, because yeah. that's something I'm going to get to after how we try to do that. I want to get into, Dr. Clemus, something that you touched on with your patients, which I think is so important. And it involves a little bit what's in a name. Now, you've edited a book I have here the book on disability and chronic fatigue, an old one, one. I had to pull it out. This disease does devastate people's lives. I want to ask you first, because I know you've been on committees about this. What was the whole thinking between changing the name of chronic fatigue syndrome to this newer term, which I think a few doctors still use, systemic exercise-induced dysfunction, SEID? Why the name changed? Was it important for the patients, medical professionals, insurance companies. you know, because As you know, too, the biggest problem also with a chronic fatigue patient is that their friends, relatives, doctors say, you don't look sick. Well, you know what, What's wrong with you? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think chronic fatigue syndrome was a really bad choice. and You think it was a bad choice? A terrible choice. It really minimized. How many people have you treated that come in and say, oh, well, I have that. I have chronic fatigue. Right. Most of America doesn't sleep well, mm-hmm. really shorts themselves on sleep uses way too much stimulants, caffeine and things to get through their day. And they, you know, definitely are fatigued people. And I think if you did a survey, you'd find 10% of people or more, I think about 10% of the primary care evaluations are for fatigue. Right. And, you know, you can do your workup and workout sleep disorder and so on, but it's a bad name because chronic fatigue syndrome is so much more than that. Patients are exhausted. That they try to use their body, they get worse. If they try to use their brain, they get worse. I mean, cognitive right, fatigue right. is a real thing with these folks. And I think the single most disabling symptom in these patients is actually cognitive fog or inability to concentrate and think and do their tasks.
1: Well, right. what about the term myalgic encephalitis, which you use? I see you you throw out there, I Dr. Myhill likes that. I mean, she had a book on that. That wasn't...
0: It puts the brain brain in the disease, and I think that helps a lot. Myalgic encephalomyelopathy, that's the name. And so the idea is that there's brain... Um,
1: Myalgic encephalopathy. Muscle
0: Mm -hmm. inflammation, and so on. And that is all very true. That's a good name.
1: So what was the impetus to to change to SEID? What was the impetus? They just felt it had to be better defined?
0: Because that committee was the Institute of Medicine Committee, and they were trying to pick a name that the evidence supported. And at the time we did that, we were pointing out that the exercise intolerance was the single most evidence-based uh, component of the diagnostic criteria.
1: All right, let's go to something I think this is related to this, how to diagnose a patient. You know, because you said a lot of patients will come in, especially in New York, probably in Florida. I'm really fatigued, I'm tired. There's no specific sign or laboratory tests. Now, I want to ask your opinion. I've had, I discussed this with Peter Rowe at Johns Hopkins it was obviously a a big issue that, especially in these young people, I'm talking about teenagers, you know, possibly young, very young adults, orthostatic hypotension was a big issue. And, And a lot of these young kids did obviously have a lot of exertional impairment, but one of the things that he found, he typically would have them stand in the consultation while he was examining or reviewing them. And he would find that after 15 or 20 minutes, they were getting dizzy because their pressure was dropping. You know, this was like sort of unrecognized. So how important is something like this, the blood pressure? I find a lot of uh, patients with this condition have, tend to run low blood pressures mm-hmm. in general. Also the importance of gender, male versus female. You know, what, what again, what are you looking at when you have patients come in? It's, again, because you've seen yeah, so you many. No, know, the
0: dysautonomia, part of this is a key central feature to the illness, the inability to regulate autonomic adrenaline, sympathetic parasympathetic balance, And and actually that made the case definition. When we simplified the case definition, it was post-exertional malaise with cognitive dysfunction and or dysautonomia, which is what Dr. Rowe was talking about. But also as a clinician, I'm going to say it's one of the most treatable parts of this illness and it's something you can really help. And so when you're looking at this illness as a clinician, you're saying, okay, that's great. They got this illness. What can I do about it? Well, if you can help the mitochondria a lot, you can help the dysautonomia a lot. And if you would recognize the dysautonomia as really kind of two things, a low blood volume, when you measure actual blood volumes using tagged cells, they're running one, about 20% below normal. If you saw that on their hematocrit, you would think of them as anemic. It's a match defect because the plasma volume and the red cell mass are both low. They track together. It looks normal. But when you do an actual red cell volume and plasma volume study, you'll see that they're running a whole liter low. That's a lot. And you can do a lot with just volume expansion with these patients. Very helpful.
1: So just to jump in, uh, I like to use it sometimes. I'll actually, I ask the patients to salt their food, or if it's pretty significant, I'll have them go on something like cortisone. Would you, you use that? You know, Agree.
0: yeah. We use electrolytes in drinks.
1: Drinks, yeah. Because they
0: got to balance the potassium and the sodium a bit more, and the magnesium's always running a little low too. So mm-hmm. if you read the back of a commercial electrolyte drink, you'll see all that's in there. But then we try to get the dyes out of it. So we're like, okay, you can, you can use coconut water. You can use clear, undyed versions or unsugared versions of the electrolyte drinks, or you can make one yourself. And I get, but them, they
1: need the salt though, right? Because of the salt. they need
0: the salt, but it's salt and potassium and magnesium. I have this little magic concoction. I say, go over to the store and buy the fake salt, the potassium chloride salt and, and empty that container into a blender and then fill it twice with real salt without iodine, just just salt. Mm. And then throw in uh, another container of Epsom salt and war that all together and you've got magnesium, potassium, sodium mm. in about the right balance. And then you use about a half a teaspoon of that. You
1: know, if you got that to taste good, that could be the cleanest uh, recipe for uh, getting healthy. With-
0: kind of nice, you know, because then there's no additives. And so yeah she can add it to something you like to drink, you know,
1: like juice or something. I want to ask you, though, too, you know, again, you mentioned about dysautonomia. I also always worry a lot about what I'll call adrenal insufficiency because it's such a hard thing to, to really measure. I mean, I get a lot of times morning aldosterone and cortisone levels on patients because I, I think the adrenal glands have been w- much more overlooked than thyroid. And mm-hmm. it's very hard to assess. I know sometimes I think even in your studies, you've looked at saliva do you think that that's playing a role?
0: It's an important thing, and it's largely overlooked. In the earliest world of MECFS cfs research, like in the early 90s, there was a number of studies, most of them British, that imaged the adrenal gland and showed that its mass was low, that there was actually a sh- shrinking adrenal gland hmm. reflects uh, a la- lack of hypothalamic and pituitary signal, Right. So, actually, in every model we have of this illness, adrenals play in all our models significantly. Oh,
1: that's important.
0: Evidence-based, way you could possibly think about. I think what I just told you, that we're doing these nine points in time, 9,000, you know, 9 million. Mm. And always out of that massive of uh, biomarker work, enter the adrenal gland. It's always there. And in most of our models, we actually have this strategy to reboot Adrenal uh, function as one element of the intervention in our research trials. Oh, wow. It turns out to be a critical player.
1: That's really important because I, I know that- There's in a your...
0: brain disease. HMP are not asking A, right? Had mm-hmm. pituitary dysfunction or is not asking the adrenal gland to do its work. And so if you measure it up higher in the chain. But if you look at these patients as a group, if adrenal is here, normally in the middle of normal, these guys are down here, but they're not below normal or they would be defined as Addison's, right? right. They'd be picked right. and go off somewhere else. So the ones you're seeing are the people that are hovering
1: on the line. Right, that's why, I, yeah, that's why I say sort of an insufficiency, right? With that in between, they're not a full deficiency, but, and you know, one of the interesting things too, is I was looking through a lot of your articles and and one of the things like we were following, I think young adults who had had mononucleosis, Epstein-Barr, you were noticing, like I think in the first six months, that they had lower ACTH levels, which is, you know, stimulates the adrenal gland. So that was like sort of a marker that you were looking at that that gave you a better idea who was going to go on to have chronic fatigue after infectious mononucleosis. Is that
0: exactly okay? right? Then it's one of the, the risk, the early risk factors. We'll be looking at that in these post-COVID patients.
1: Yeah, I was curious. So what do you find? Again, a patient comes to you and like you said, they come with a stack of Labs. I mean, you know, I get this also. Almost everything's been done. Almost everything. What are some? I was just curious. Critical things. If you had to pick out like five or six, if possible, critical markers that you're looking at. Is it cytokine markers? You know, again, which we don't normally routinely get, uh, but might be really important now with COVID. Like you know, the interleukin markers, or are you looking at typical just inflammation, CRP, sedimentation rates? What you know, what would be like the things that you're really like honing in on?
0: We're looking pretty broad because, again, like I say, it's a bigger illness than just immune or just viral. But I mean, viral markers are important. And I, I have to underscore that viral markers are important.
1: When you say viral markers, do you mean the cytokines or do you mean the actual just No, virus the the
0: actual. Viral, oh, like Epstein-Barr
1: virus, you know, because everybody has...
0: HHV6, so everyone's had it, right? And right? Your antibody pattern looks like an old infection. Right. These patients' antibody pattern looks like a reactivation infection. They have they the have antibody to early antigen, which is inside the virus. It has to be being expressed for the immune system to see it and rekindle mm-hmm. the antibody response. And often they have IGM, which is just crazy. That's no. what I was about
1: to ask you. Yeah, I've seen that in a few. I get kind of excited when I see that because I'll talk to you about how I try to treat them. Because mm-hmm. yeah, to me it's almost like hepatitis. You know, when someone has a chronic hepatitis type of thing, we you know we're more comfortable with that. But okay, but so think like- of the
0: immune system is immune exhaustion. Okay, you look at the immune system; it's activated, it's inflammatory, and it's dysfunctional. And mm-hmm. you say, okay, well, why would an immune system do that? Well, the immune system is antigen-driven. There has to be something in there that's saying, go, 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 go. It could be autoantibody. It could be an infectious disease. And believe it or not, they can be just a cholinergic signal. It can just be adrenaline, which matters in these POTS patients, in these patients with the dysautonomia. So you think, how many go buttons are there? And can you... Work your way through the go buttons and say, okay, what are the antigens in the system? Can I, can I discover an autoimmune disease? Can I discover a chronic viral infection? And then the cholinergic thing, kind of easy to see. I mean, you can check the pulse on that one. But meanwhile, you have this empty bucket. Remember nature? HIV how we used to talk about the bucket all the time and that the T-cells were in the bucket and the virus was driving and that you had to turn off the spigot, you had to stop the virus, and then the bucket would refill? Well, the bucket didn't just refill. It needed a lot of support to refill. Right. So if, if you had the chronic fatigue, if your bucket is empty and it's been going, going, going and driving itself down, you have mitochondrial dysfunction on nutrient deficiencies. You've used them up. Yeah. You've used up the um, amino acids and granzymes and perforins that, that do the viral killing. So you used up a lot of nutritional things. So nutrition is an intervention.
1: That's great to hear. Yeah.
0: That intervention. Nutrition's a very important intervention, but you still have to stop the hole in the bucket. Why is it driving so hard? And if you can, mm. can find a virus to, to intervene upon, if you can find an autoimmune system that's driving this thing, then, well, then we got to go after those guys too. And so you got to play the art of medicine here quite a bit.
1: Yeah. Let me ask you one thing too, because one of the, the things which you know people don't like to admit, but- So many of the cases that I've seen, unfortunately, there's not really usually a really clear-cut infection relation that at least the patient can see. What I do see, though, and not to minimize this, is usually an incredible stressor. I mean, somebody has gone through... You know, they a divorce, or they were caring for an older sick parent, and then on top of that, they were going to school, and they lost their job. I feel like again, too. You know, you know, you, you're in charge of the Neuroimmune Institute. I mean, there really is this neuroimmune connection, like where again, if you get so overloaded that the cortisol levels and everything, you I mean, can't do you find-
0: downplay stress as as important in human health, no matter what mm-hmm. disease. Yeah, but in this disease, it's interesting because. Again, I'm going to say this parallel illness for treating Gulf War illness in the animal model. We hit the animal with a neurotoxin a mouse, and cortisol at the same time, and that creates a chronic illness. If mm-hmm. we just use the neurotoxin by itself, they recover from the neurotoxic hit. If we hit them a bunch with the neurotoxin over and over again, yeah, to get them, to be, they'll be chronically ill. But if you hit them once with a the neurotoxin, then you intermittently hit them with cortisol you create the chronic illness that keeps bumping higher and higher over time. So pretend this is life now for a moment and your brain hit was a virus or your brain hit was a mycotoxin or your brain hit was a military exposure to some dreadful toxin. Now life's stress events are going to ramp up the chronicity and the severity of that illness over time. By this model, and I think it's a fair model. I think that's absolutely a very reasonable way to look at it. Just to make things worse, though, and maybe it's an adaptive mechanism, you down regulate your ability to make cortisone over time that adrenal exhaustion you're talking about. Yeah, in the back of your head, you have to think, is it a good idea to repair this before I've repaired the brain disease? Mm. Because what if that was an adaptive protective mechanism? I, I don't know if that's true or not, but what if. <laughs> So I'm always thinking through these things like, well, yeah, of course, I want to make everything look physiologically normal in my labs. Right. What's actually going on here and why? If I can do a lot, can do a lot to repair mitochondria and I do that first. I mean, the very first thing out of the box I do and I'm an immunologist. Right. Get the diet, right. Get the nutrients in. If I can do an exhaustive panel of an actual personalized look at all those nutrients, I do it. But otherwise, yeah, I'm just using it. A lot of antioxidants, things across the blood-brain barrier, NAC is probably the best of those. Yeah, I
1: know. I heard you mention that at talk. Now now you're going to be really excited because, again, what I've been doing the last 30 years in practice, but definitely the last 10 to 15 years incorporating functional and holistic medicine, and again, I learned from Jacob Teidelbaum, you know, we're doing like IV vitamin C and other nutrients, high dose in patients, just, you know, not forever, but intensively in the beginning to try to give them that boost. And, And one of the things I just want to bring out and hear your opinion about, I was just reading, I was looking this up again, you know, it's very interesting. The adrenal glands are the organ that concentrate vitamin C the most in the body. And as you know, it's hard to get orally really high doses of vitamin C without getting diarrhea or getting stomach acidity. So you do believe that really trying to essentially get high doses of vitamins, whether it's vitamin C, glutathione, either through NAC. I'm curious what you think about D-ribose. That's a big thing that... um, Mm, that's an interesting one too. And CoQ10.
0: There's, there's not enough evidence in, in our literature to, to right. base everything I'm saying here. You know, all of these antioxidants work together in those right. Krebs cycle circles. And just right. one right. or two or three is probably not the answer, but rather look at right. the totality of it and realize that our diet is really important. That you, There's only so much you can do with supplements and nutritional support. I mean, say that. I do, too, use supplements and nutritional support.
1: What would you say is a good diet? Because again, that's another. I've had podcasts on that. I mean, uh, I like a lot what Barry Sears said about the Zone diets, about getting a certain amount of protein. You know, again, I have people that are very into keto, they're people into paleo, There are people into vegetarian, which I find is not good because they sometimes get very depleted of my, vitamin and minerals. So, when you say a good diet, what are you, what are you telling your patients?
0: Yeah, I was watching at PBS yesterday, and Mark Hyman was on. Well, uh, Mark. <laughs> Think about not processed foods. Number one, get away from processed foods. Number two, shop the green section of your aisle. Skip the entire middle of the grocery store and just go down the vegetables and come on around up Mm -hmm. the dairy and the other fresh foods and then get on out of that grocery store. Don't shop in the middle where the cans and things are. Right. But um, in terms of healthy diets, honestly antioxidant rich diet. So it's going to be, you know, dark green vegetables, leafy green vegetables, the rainbow colors of fruits, all of those yeah. things with healthy protein sources. And that's so important not to be eating a lot of red meat that you can substitute hopefully as organically as possible if you can right. afford the things that are both sustainable, chicken and turkey and things like that. Right. And smaller fishes, because the bigger fishes, tuna and
1: they carry a lot of toxins. These
0: guys, guys concentrate mercury and
1: other toxins. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But just also to ask you about with supplements, because I know you've talked to me about, now you like, was it ubiquinol? Versus even CoQ10, is that is there a difference there? I do or? tend
0: to go with ubiquinol because ubiquinone requires the right enzymatic pathways to become ubiquinol to work. So why not use the one that's already working?
1: Yeah, um, I think do you it's like a, a, do like a certain of, dose on that. Do you like like two hundred? So milligram? yeah, we're
0: doing research on this right now. Ubiquinol dose in our study, like you infusing people intensively to refill the bucket. These things in people, they're very low in glutathione. They're very low in ubiquinol and ubiquinone and all the the CoQ10 determinants. So we use higher doses for three or four months to get them up. Not less than 200 milligrams, but perhaps 400 milligrams. In our studies, we're using 400. Mm, In our practice, we're probably using 200. Mm -hmm. We sustain them with 100. Now, 100 of ubiquinol is equal to 300 of ubiquinone, roughly. So, if you guys are used to using the regular CoQ10, I'm talking about using 1200 milligrams versus 600 versus 300. That's sort of the same time frame. I'm
1: sorry, you said the ubiquinol is the lower amount because it's more concentrated. Yeah, so you ubiquinol,
0: had, you'd need be less 100
1: and it'd be 300 if it was CoQ10. Yeah,
0: exactly. That's the, the factor to keep in your head. Yeah. The NAC is trickier. The NAC, Dr. Shungu of Cornell just did a study in MECFS where he used 900 milligrams BID of NAC and he normalized oxidative stress in ME-CFS brains to normal.
1: Wow. You like NAC better than the actual glutathione itself because you said that it just doesn't get absorbed well or something? I don't
0: want like to say totally that because the liposomal glutathions do absorb and we use intranasal glutathione and it goes across the brain. Oh, really
1: interesting. Fine.
0: Okay, mm-hmm. so if you use compounded glutathione, na- nasal spray, Dr. Menche and... Uh, Oregon did a beautiful study in Parkinson's and she could show that it crossed and that she again got changes. I love these new imaging strategies for oxidative stress in the brain because it's getting mm. visual. And I'm like, there's an oxidative stress brain. And then like, man, there's a brain without oxidative stress. They did this. And she did the intranasal uh, glutathione.
1: What do you like for a dose for glutathione typically, even if you take it sublingually or something like, again, like a hundred, 200 milligrams? Oh, so
0: it vi- varies on the product. Yeah. Yeah. We've been using Ready Labs liposomal glutathione. I think it's 600 in their in their dosage. Oh yeah,
1: in one dose. Okay. I'm just curious. You said about the D-ribose. You've heard about, you know, you know. I had a guest on who's a really interesting guy, Dr. Stephen Sinatra. And the reason I think D-ribose could be so important for chronic fatigue patients is that he's used it with heart failure patients where he swears that, you know, these these patients have improved heart function. And he feels that the D-ribose really does get in to the mitochondria and help the muscle cells and stuff. So I was just curious if... Uh, Another thing on
0: the circles of the... Yeah right so you're trying to make things uh better by little bits and pieces yeah but in the d studies which have been effective they either were or they weren't so one of the things you can say to someone that you try d on is if you're not feeling better in a month don't keep doing
1: it yeah right because right. these things do get expensive i mean you could you could end up spending up to two hundred dollars a month on, on you all can your and the
0: nadh is the same way not yet another energy pathway thing you could throw in there but don't fix energy until you fix antioxidants, because there's no point in it. Why would you want to make better energy production if they can't manage free radicals?
1: Okay. That's a good, that's a really good point. So yeah, I like that. I think... Fix the antioxidants first and then fix the- right.
0: put in order. Get your antioxidants all cleaned up and then do things that you think would promote energy.
1: Is there any test or any way you know if you're- You know, it's interesting. There was a book. It sounds almost like you're alluding to it. There was a book called The Color Code and it all talked about all the different- phytonutrients and vegetables. It was a really great book. I, I love it. But they had like an ORAC score. It was called for different vegetables, you know, how much antioxidant potential they had. But is there any way to test to see how, like, again, if you're fixing somebody's antioxidants? I mean, is there anything that, that you find?
0: It's test. It can be done. I mean, it's pricey, some of them are covered by Medicare, and some of them are even on. Like what? You know, what,
1: what, what kind of test are we talking about? What would What would tell your antioxidants? Like
0: Nutri- has a good one. Um, there's a number of companies that measure glutathione. And well, they measure
1: glutathione. Oh, so that would be the marker to you. So, like, let's say I've seen glutathione in the red one. blood cell. If that was in a good range, you would think that the person's.
0: That would be a good good general measure of what your antioxidant status okay. is.
1: Okay, I like that. Okay.
0: So when thinking about mitochondria, also remember that there's. A reduction in the number of mitochondria per cell. Mm-hmm. You have to ask the question: Why would that be? Again, could it be an adaptive mechanism? Because if you are making free radicals and you're not cleaning them up, you're going to kill the cell. Right. So the cell's going to downregulate energy production to protect itself right. from, from cell death. Right. Think about that when you're when you're doing these things. That antioxidant piece of this formula is is as critical as anything else, mm. and it could be that if you fix that, that the other elements in the bioenergetic process will self-correct because now it's safe to do mm, so.
1: That's a great pearl. I, I learned my great pearl today. I like, I, like, you know, I think I've been doing that yeah, all along. <laughs> Landon,
0: I, I can give you a pearl. Yeah, yeah I,
1: a, you know, I need stuff. it. Uh, <laughs> let me throw just a little more conventional stuff too. I've used gamma globulin, but intramuscular in patients that I thought was really infectious related because sometimes they seem to have these post-latent inflammation. I've seen some reports where the people have tried rheumatological drugs like rituximab or IL-6 blockers. Do you think any of these things have a place in ME, SEID, or not really?
0: Yeah. I mean, they're very different things. So when you're trying to treat a virus, you have to think of what are you doing? Yeah. At Gepstein-Barr virus, we talk about it all the time. It's not the most important virus in this illness. HH6 is more frequent. Really? Okay. Mm. Much more frequent reactivation. We just don't have quite as good biomarkers to know who's mm. who. To go by antibody titers greater than one to one sixty or so to get a sense of who's reactivated. Yeah. And then and then there's the enteroviruses in the gut. I mean, John Chi has done great work to show that enteroviruses are reactivated. So if you could say, damn, all these viruses are reactivated, what does that mean? It means immune surveillance is down. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's what it means. Your yeah. immune surveillance is down. Can you fix immune surveillance? So I consider antiviral therapy a temporary fix working on immune surveillance is that leaky bucket thing. If I could just plug the leaky bucket, the virus is driving more immune activation and then work on repair mostly through nut- nutritional supports to help the cells recover. Yeah. And then do I still need an antiviral? Do I have cell function? Well, in our laboratory, we can measure cytotoxicity. Mm. So I'm, I have a biomarker I can I, my go-to biomarker, what's your natural killer cell actually doing before I Do you find
1: that helpful? You'd like to see- Very like, much so. Yeah.
0: The NK cell function in these patients is very poor.
1: Mm.
0: Worse than in HIV.
1: Really? Wow. Dr. Clemens, what do you like to see? Because again, I like to explain to patients too because we do our intensive protocols. And I, I, you know, again, some of these people have been suffering for a long time, but I like to see within really a month or two months they're getting some kind of response because I don't want them spending the time and the money if I'm not really going to be able to help them. So what is, again... That's too short. Too short. I mean,
0: you need at least four months. And any really? clinical trial that's been done in ME-CFS, mm-hmm. they didn't have a four-month period. They, they didn't see the response.
1: And what would you like to see? Usually, like a 20 30% response, I mean, Because you have to be realistic also. I the mean, it's that- a
0: functional improvement. And the patient yeah. can... That's interesting about her human nature. Say, I don't feel any better. And the reason is this, okay... You'll have a patient whos bedbound, housebound, that goes back to part-time work and comes into you and says, I'm not any better. Right. Well, excuse me. Yes,
1: yes. I just had that with the patient.
0: <laughs> the real answer is, I don't feel any better. And that and they don't feel better. If they don't feel better, they're saying, I don't feel any better. But the fact is they're driving themselves they're to are the relapse. They're like,
1: functioning. Yeah. This
0: concept of pacing is a crucial concept. Yes, and- yes.
1: Yeah. yeah, I know. Because they get frustrated too. All of a sudden, even if they feel a little bit better, they'll say, oh gosh, I went out for a run. I went to do this. And now I feel horrible. And I'm like, Whoa. how many
0: patients that yeah. I know that actually tried to go back to a normal training program, Right, right. the post COVID even worse because they don't know about pacing. These ME-CFS patients at least know yeah. enough shouldn't have done that. All
1: right. We have to go on to the, the last part, which is also I'm sure going to interest a lot of listeners is the whole thing with COVID-19 and what it's going to teach us about chronic fatigue syndrome. Congratulations on getting this huge grant because it's so important that now, this condition is going to get a lot of attention. And hopefully, like like with AIDS, we're going to learn so much with the extra research on this. But just some initial questions. Do you have any initial data or what you're seeing? What percentage of people that are infected with COVID-19 are actually going on to develop these chronic symptoms?
0: That's actually the point of the study, in part, is just to understand the prevalence of what's going on, if there's any risk factors. So in the study, we're, we're really not focused that much on the severest end of COVID. We know that there's sequelae to having been in the ICU or right. your pneumonia or any of those yeah, things. Yeah, I'm talking about like
1: everyday people who've gotten it, who all of a sudden now, I mean, I'm seeing these patients, especially unfortunately a lot of healthcare workers, they got COVID last March or April and they can't work. Their blood pressure is all over the place, going up, going down, you know, just feeling really terrible. And and again, the brain fog, the concentration issues, fatigue. I mean, this is its own epidemic now. So I was just curious if there's anything that you're finding, do people who have had like who lose their taste or smell, are they more prone to getting this? Are the people that get rashes? Is there anything initially that we're seeing that may tip us off who's at risk?
0: I think that, that we don't know yet. Okay. I think we've all got stories like that, but who knows? So that's the point of the CDC study is to to first find out how many are there, are there any predictors? And then most importantly, what's the outcome? What's going to happen over the next few years? Then we're taking a group of this, we have 2,200 people in this big survey platform that we're pulling from local public health PCR positive people. So it's neat. It's a very demographically rich group. It's not leaving anyone out. A very important study to do on that respect. But we're also going to be able to follow them over the next few years and look at trajectory and predictors of trajectory. So once you're ill, what's going to happen? but we have questions embedded in this study to ask also the type of risk factors that you just asked. So, so we'll find out the short answers. We'll find out,
1: you know, what I would find fascinating. I know if they'll include this in the trial, but you know, it's quite striking no matter what your politics, president Trump, Chris Christie, Rudy Giuliani, they all got the Regeneron, or one of them got the different companies, the monoclonal antibodies. And they all seem to be doing quite well. (laughs) So I'm just curious too, if that is going to be looked at at all, or should it be that people, you know, I have a friend of mine who's a head of infectious disease at one of the hospitals here in New York. And she said, anybody over 55, 60 who tests positive for COVID, not a bad idea to get the monoclonal antibodies. I mean, maybe that will change with the vaccines, but you know, I'm just curious if you are going to be looking at it all to see if these people have a better, you know, chance of not getting chronic symptoms.
0: So here's the good news. Okay. The NIH received $1.15 billion, with a capital B dollars to study wow. COVID wow. illness. And they're doing it in a very novel way. It's amazing I took the time off for this interview because they put a call for announcements out, a call for protocols out just last Tuesday that's due in two and a half weeks will be funded oh, wow. next month and operationalized by May. I mean, that's crazy talking.
1: Wow. wow. Term,
0: let alone NIH terms that they're going to get this vast number of responses to this call for proposals specifically to develop the cohorts needed to answer all these really important questions. What I'm going to be definitely in the mix screaming for and wanting is to make sure that this ME-CFS-like illness is not left out because it really was the intended focus of, of that kind of funding. Because when you put a billion dollars out on the table, you're going to bring every kind of new investigator to our field.
1: Right. Dr. Klinis, what are you hoping for patients that have ME, SEID in the near future? What can we hope for that, you know, to try to help these The people? good
0: news for ME, CFS patients is that this infusion of funding dollars for post-COVID illness is going to have an enormous impact on what we know about ME, CFS illness Because if you might imagine that this post-viral illness, COVID illness, is presenting almost identically to ME, CFS, it's post-viral as is ME, CFS, and that what we've been missing in ME/CFS for a long time is the ability to, to see people early in their course. Of
1: exactly, exactly.
0: This really important science.
1: Yeah.
0: And Not only do we have the perfect model illness in our lab, but the advocates in Congress and the NIH, bless you all CDC, they're operationalizing this in record time, and they understand. I heard the head of the NINDS on a conference say, "We get that early intervention is key, and that we can't." Years of doing bench work before we're proposing actual interventions. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, we're going to put something in. You can be sure that the integrative medicine approach will be included in part of what we're submitting, and hopefully, every other group experience like ours. But I'm hoping new to the field, being attracted by the dollars, but really geniuses. Yes. And you know, there's something to a pandemic about, I mean, this, to me, this is like a duty, you know, when you're saying, for me, I feel like I trained 35 years in MACFS so that I would be here. Yeah,
1: your time is now. There's, if there's ever a time, like you said, yeah, like they always say like, you know, when there's a fire, the firefighters don't run from the fire. They run into the fire. Well, right now, you know, yeah, it's it an is important your time. time for you've been, all you've been of toiling. Us, you know,
0: and I'm going to call out, to everyone that knows about anything, mitochondria, viral reactivation, whatever, this is your moment to get in there and try to help people. Yeah. Bring them away, welcome them in, find a way. We're struggling because we had a wait list before this epidemic. And we're like, well, but we have to see these people. We have to see them now because we could do something.
1: What's going to happen now?
0: So we're trying, you know, struggling with smoke and mirrors and no news, new resources. To try to, to help yeah. the, the know how.
1: Well, Dr. Clemens, I want to thank you so much. I was really looking forward to this. You've given me a lot of, and hopefully my listeners, a lot of really important information and even more importantly that, a lot of hope. I'm really excited to see what you're going to be doing in the next few months and years with this illness. So thank you for taking the time to share it with us oh, you're today. Welcome.
0: Thank you for having me. Good luck. Take care. Okay,
1: take care. Good luck. Bye. Thanks. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean DeanMitchellMD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.